Good morning. Hope you guys had a good Christmas. Uh, would you guys do me a favor and, and uh, spend a moment to pray for me at this moment, and I'll do the same for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoke, that you have given us the gift of your son. And even after Christmas, Lord, we want to remember that. Uh, I pray for this time now as we delve into your word. We ask that the Holy Spirit, you would guide my thoughts, guide my tone. We ask that you would, your Holy Spirit would make our hearts gallop. Because only you can do that. Only you can touch us in that way. I pray that you would be with me, guide my thoughts and words. Make clear uh, where I fail. And again, let us see Jesus. It is your voice we need to hear. It is you and your glory we need to see. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It has become known as the largest worship gathering in the world. Kumela. Kumela. Every three years, over 70 million people gather from all around the world to bathe in the Ganges River. Now, what goes into the Ganges? All the drainage and sewage water of all the nearby cities. And yet what has become known as the Holy River is able to compel 70 million people to wash away their sins in the Ganges. Kumela. Now I've never been, but Mark Twain had. And after experiencing Kumela at the end of the 19th century, he had this to say about his experience. It is wonderful. The power of a faith like that can make multitudes upon multitudes of the old and weak and the young and frail enter without hesitation or complain upon such incredible journeys and endure the resultant miseries without repining. It is done in love or it is done in fear. I do not know which it is. Now what compels 70 million people to wash in the Ganges? Is it done in love? Or is it done in fear? Now this Advent season, we have been looking at the coming of the true and greater. We saw that Jesus is the one that we all have been waiting for. He is the coming of the true and greater prophet, the priest and the king. Last week we saw that Jesus was the greater Adam, the true and greater Adam. That he ushered in a new humanity by becoming everything that Adam wasn't, that he succeeded where Adam failed. And today we will close out the series by looking at the coming of the true and greater temple. The temple. Now in John chapter 2, we see that the people of God are gathering around, not at the Ganges, but in Jerusalem. Not in a river, but at a temple. And when Jesus shows up, there's an episode. Not because in his hand he's got bread of loaf to feed the hungry. Not because he's got a scroll to read of scripture. But because in his hand is a whip. This passage is very startling. In fact, this passage is disturbing for many who have studied it. But my hope today is that we will see that it can also be very liberating and very comforting. So I want to ask two questions this morning. First... What draws us to temples? 
And second, how does Jesus draw us to himself? So first, what draws us to temples? And then second, how does Jesus draw us to himself? In our passage in John chapter 2, so first, what draws us to temples? In our passage in John chapter 2, it's Passover season. It's Passover. And Jesus shows up, and what does he see? He sees hundreds of thousands of people flocking to Jerusalem from all around the world to come to what we would deem to be a magnificent temple. And within these temple walls, there would have been a commotion, not only of people, but you would have had just as many animals. Now, people were coming from faraway lands, and because of the, it would have been too cumbersome and impractical for all of them to bring their sacrifices, the locals set up shop. And in these shops, you would have found a bunch of animals. So a visitor would come and purchase and you know, make a transaction and pick an animal up on the spot upon arrival. And you know, tables were set up, like concession stands, like you would much find at a, you know, like a football stadium or something. And not only would you have had a bunch of tables set up selling animals, but you would have also had a bunch of money changers. Money changers set up shop there too. Because not everyone was bringing in the same currency. So all a visitor would have to do would show up to Jerusalem to exchange to the common currency, purchase a sheep or goat or whatever else you're offering, and then take them to the priest. A whole system was set up to facilitate the offering up of these sacrifices during the Passover season. Now, in the ancient times, a temple wasn't merely a place where you went to go worship. It was actually believed to be the very place where the deity would reside. So the building itself was the home, the very home of the deity. And so this is why it was never enough to merely make a sacrifice in your back porch. No matter where you were, you always had to return to the temple. Now, when I was an undergrad student, I had the opportunity to visit Rome and Greece, uh, checked out Athens, saw a bunch of temple ruins. It was my thing. It was really cool. And the Temple of Zeus, even in ruins, you can imagine the wonder it must have been. It was started in the 6th century B.C. They started constructing it in 6th century B.C., and it took them over 600-plus years. Now, many spent and gave up their entire lives making a home for the god Zeus, knowing that they would never in their lifetime see its completion. Now, why work so hard on such a magnificent project? What's with the fascination with the temple? C.S. Lewis, in one of his essays and sermons, writes this. He says, Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside will be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. What C.S. Lewis is saying is that in each and every one of us is a deep inkling that something is just not right. 
something has gone awry. That there is a gap between who we were designed to be and where we actually are. There's a gap. And the biblical explanation for why we feel that uneasiness comes in the early chapters of Genesis. God designed us in His glorious image. God designed us for wholeness and peace. And yet, our first parents disobeyed. And when they did, their eyes were open. They felt shame. They felt the weight of guilt. And they felt a breach in their relationship with each other, with the world around them, and with their maker. And God cast them out of Eden to the east. And barring their way back in were cherubim with a flaming sword. And that's where we live. We live east of Eden. We feel timid and unsure. And we fixate on making things right. Why? Because there's a gap. The Bible calls this sin. Now, you might be here sitting here just thinking, no, you're about to lose me. I mean, why? You actually believe this stuff? I mean, how can you buy into something so primitive? But the biblical account, to me, makes a lot of sense. It actually comports well with how we actually feel. It has explanatory power for why 70 million people flock to Washington Ganges. It has explanatory power. It makes a lot of sense. Now, why do they do that? I mean, the Ganges is, is essentially sewage water. The Bible explanation has a lot of explanatory power. Now, Sigmund Freud, one of his most famous protégés was a man named Otto Rank. Otto Rank, I think that's a cool name. Otto Rank. He was not a Christian. He was a secular psychologist. And he had this to say about modern man's plight. He says, The neurotic type suffers from a consciousness of sin just as much as did his religious ancestor without believing in the conception of sin. This is precisely what makes him neurotic. He feels a sinner without the religious belief in sin for which he therefore needs a new rational explanation. What he is saying is that modern man knows he's a sinner, but God being out of fashion, he's got no word for it. And that's precisely what makes him neurotic. Now, you might not be a Christian here, and, and, uh, but you still, you, you, you know that something is just not right. And we all have a longing for wholeness and peace. We all sense that there is a gap. Why is that? We all know that we don't measure up. We all know what it feels like to be incompetent, to be a failure, to not quite be where we're supposed to be. It's because we live east of Eden. We live east of Eden. We feel timid and insecure, and we fixate on making things right. Now, I grew up in the church. 
Uh, my father was an elder of a church. My mother prayed hours and hours daily. And I was taught English by being told to read the Bible. And so I did. I read the Bible all the way through by the time I was in the first grade. And it was still not, not enough. And so I read it again the next year and again the next year. When I was in college, I memorized seven books of the Bible in my first two years uh, with you know, the determination that I would memorize the entire New Testament by age 30. And I was a student of, God, student of God's word, but it was not enough. I mean, I, I, I worked so hard for it. I mean, why was I doing this? I mean, on one hand, you know, it probably would have been a bragging right up and pretty cool. It's like it opened up to John 6. <laughs> I got to hear. I mean, why was I doing that? Because I was trying to amount to something to make me feel better about who I was, to give me the, the identity, the name of being a good Christian guy. But the problem was, no matter what I did, it was not enough. I was a student of God's word, but following Christ brought me no joy. I was still counting all the times that would mess up in a given week or in a day. I would literally count, like literally, write tally marks on a piece of paper. And if the number of bad things outweighed my good things, I felt compelled to confess over and over and over again. Make promises to make amends and to do better the next day. You know what I was doing? I realized that I was offering up my own sacrifices to bridge the gap. In other words, I was seeking a temple. But you know what the problem is with us trying to bridge that gap? Is it never works. It always leads to constant scrutiny and perpetual doubt. Why? Why? Because if it's up to us to size up in any way, then the question remains, am I sizing up enough? Ernest Becker, who was a really intelligent person, he, he, he was not a Christian, and he was not religious in any way, but he thought a lot about this. He thought a lot about this gap that we feel. And he had this to say. He came to this conclusion. He says, Guilt is not a result of infantile fantasy, but of self-conscious adult reality. There is no strength that can overcome guilt unless it be the strength of a God. I think Becker is onto something. I think he understands that bridging this gap is something that is not within our reach. It is completely beyond us. It is not something that we can do. There is no strength that can overcome guilt unless it be the strength of a God. So how does Jesus draw us to himself? How does Jesus draw us to himself? He does so with passion, zeal, and intentionality. When Jesus shows up and he sees the commotion, how does he respond? He 
takes the tables of these money changers and he flips them upside down. He grabs a whip and he chases everyone out of the temple. Every man, woman, and cow are out. Now, this doesn't comport well with our popular preconceived paradigms of, you know, Jesus making mild. We all love those lovely stories of Jesus welcoming children or holding a gentle lamb. But that's not what we have here. So what's going on? What is going on? Why is Jesus so repulsed by what he sees? Why such a radical reaction? What's going on? Is it that he has an issue with people making money or doing business around the temple vicinity, you know, and thereby commercializing a religion. I don't think that's quite it. You know, selling cattle and exchanging money and currency is, you know, innately, they're not innately all that bad. In fact, you might argue that they were doing a service. So what a reaction. What's going on? Jesus is after something a lot more holistic. He sees a greater problem. The problem was the entire temple and sacrificial system itself. The problem was with the entire temple and sacrificial system itself. Now think about what's going on here. Jesus casts out every single animal out of the temple during Passover. During Passover. A little bad timing, Jesus. I mean, what are you going to do without the shedding of blood during Passover? What are you going to do without the blood of sheep and cattle? And that's exactly the point. They wouldn't be needed anymore. Now, what must Jesus have been thinking when he sees a bunch of animals being offered up? What must Jesus have been feeling when he saw a bunch of people coming from faraway lands to purchase four-legged creatures to be offered up as unwilling sacrifices? What must he be thinking? Now, when God gave the blueprint for the temple and the sacrificial system. He knew that these animals were never intended to be the final answer. They can never take away sin. They can never remove our guilt. They can never take our place. The temple and sacrificial system were never enough to bridge the gap. All they could do was point. We needed something greater. Now, you know what the problem is with the temple and sacrificial system? It ultimately depended and hinged on us. We were still the ones bringing the offerings. I mean, it was a marketplace. It was still up to us to buy our way, to bring something to contribute. It ultimately hinged on us. And if it hinges on us, then our relationship to God cannot be anything more than transactional and be characterized by a lack of intimacy. Now, you guys remember the Seinfeld episode 
Any of you guys watch Seinfeld ever? Raise your hands, please. Seinfeld fans, thank you. You guys remember the soup Nazi? The soup Nazi? And you, you couldn't smile. You couldn't do things. You had to do things a particular way in order to get soup. You know? I brought this for visual aid. <laughs> One lobster bisque. And you did it wrong, you laugh, you smile, you smirk, you look the other way, do it one thing wrong, and no suit for you. And truth be told, if we think, I mean, most of us have a notion of God that resembles something like that. No suit for you. One year. Mess up again, no suit for you. Two years. You know, we think that if we do something the right way, if we do something the right way, we're going to get soup. If we do something the wrong way. We're not going to get soup. No soup for you. We're going to get punishment. We're going to be in God's doghouse. And either way, there is no joy. We're left timid and unsure. I mean, there's no joy. Now, perhaps you're here today and you, you've heard about the person of Christ. You've heard his claims. And you've just decided it just wasn't for you. Perhaps you're here today as a follower of Christ and you find that your Christianity has left you with very little satisfaction, excitement, and joy. I want to submit to you the possibility, merely the possibility, that what you have been introduced to and what you have embraced is more of a marketplace relationship where it still ultimately hinges on you. What does Jesus intend? What does Jesus intend for us? He intends that we would know God, not as the soup Nazi, but as a father. What we want to make a marketplace, Jesus intends to be his father's house. Now, what sort of relationship is Jesus ushering in here? A relationship that is safe, solid, and secure in the Father's love. Now, Kendra and I often joke about how one day our kids are going to leave the house, they're going to go off to college, and they're never going to come back to visit us. They're only going to come back to do their laundry. But they're never going to come back to visit us. We hope that's not true. Uh, we, we hope that they, they'll still like us when they get older, and they'll still want to be with us all the time. But even if... They only come back to our house once a month to do their laundry. We'll still take it. We'll still be thrilled to see them. Because our love for them is not contingent upon their response to us. They're always welcome to do their laundry at our place. Now, what if when they're older, uh, they, they, don't wanna, uh, you know, they only want to come back you know, for the occasional Thanksgiving dinner. I want them to know that the moment they step into Daddy's house, it's their house too. I want them to feel so secure that they're able to just walk right in, beeline to the refrigerator, grab a bottle of beer, open it up, and throw themselves in the recliner and own the room because they do and because they can Jesus is zealous that we would know that God is our Father. 
And that we don't have to do anything. We don't have to bring anything to the table. What if we could believe that? I wonder what difference it would make. How can we be so sure of this? What sign would he give to convince our feeble hearts that this is so? Jesus said that his body, the true temple of God, would be consumed. That he would, it would be destroyed and raised in three days. Now, where does Jesus' zeal in John chapter 2 lead him? It leads him to the cross. It leads him to the cross. And at that altar, Jesus would be consumed. Jesus' zeal for his Father's house would consume him. And at the moment of Jesus' death, it is significant that the veil that kept us from enjoying God's presence that that veil that prevented anyone from coming in to the Holy of Holies except for the high priest and that only once a year, that that veil was torn down. It was torn in half. You remember what was on that veil? Cherubim. Cherubim was embroidered all over that veil. When God cast man out of the garden, he set in front of the garden cherubim with flaming sword to guard entrance from the east. Now what's that about? Cherubim and a flaming sword. Now a flaming sword, they both the fire and the sword, they always represent God's justice, His wrath, God's righteous anger. And if it symbolizes His justice, we look at the cross of where God's justice was completed. And at the moment of Jesus' death, when the sword of justice fell on his head, at that very moment, we are told that that curtain, that veil, with cherubim all over, was torn in two from top to bottom. What's our way in? How do we get in? How do we bridge the gap? Is it something that we bring to the table? Not at all. Everything that God requires of us has already been abundantly supplied in Christ. Perhaps you're here today and you, you have yet to identify yourself with the person of Jesus. Maybe it's because you've always thought it was, you know, following Jesus is too burdensome, that it's too much commitment, that it would require too much of you. But my friends, are you starting to see that the gospel is not about our commitment to God, it's about His commitment to us. And in Christ, when we are able to have a relationship with God that is so infinitely secure, then and only then will His commands not be burdensome. Following Jesus is meant to be enjoyed. That doesn't happen in the marketplace. Perhaps you're here today and you cannot find yourself to come to the altar of Christ because you feel that you have blown it so badly that you cannot convince yourself that God can truly love, you, love somebody like you. You just don't believe it. It's not possible. And you feel like you have to make amends first and make things right and come maybe when you got yourself a little bit better together. But my friends, that is religion. That is the marketplace. But that is not Christianity. The gospel says that he 
was consumed so that we would not be. He spilled his blood so that we would not have to. God is our Father, and we don't have to bring anything to the table. Now, one of my favorite movies is the movie Atonement. Atonement. It takes place in England with 13-year-old Briny, and just, this is right before World War II. And 13-year-old Briny thinks that she sees Robbie, the housekeeper's son, take advantage of her older sister, Cecilia. And so she reports him to the authorities, and Robbie is arrested. The only problem is that she got it wrong. Robbie and Cecilia were actually in a secret love relationship, and now everything had been ruined because of this little sister. Robbie is sent off from prison to France to serve in the army during the Second World War. And years later, when Bryony comes of age, she's able to grasp the gravity of what she did. She ruined Robbie and Cecilia's lives. And what we want as we watch the movie is the very same thing that Bryony wants. We want Robbie and Cecilia to be reunited. And we get the sense that until they do, that Bryony would not be able to live with herself. The need for atonement is palpable. She writes letters and letters and letters to her sister asking for forgiveness. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. She is desperately needing the opportunity to say the words, I'm so sorry, and to be heard. And every single letter is returned unopened. Her guilt is so overwhelming that she turns down an opportunity to attend, attend Cambridge. And instead, she goes to serve as a nurse in the war. And you almost get the sense that as she spends days and nights, wounded soldiers coming by, as she spends this time with them, that she actually welcomes the pain, hoping that it will somehow serve as some sort of penance. In one scene, you find her scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing their blood off her hands. You can tell that her sins are haunting her, that they're eating her alive. You get the sense that there is no atonement. You get the sense that there is no penance so deep, so great to make things right. And the only hope that we have as we watch this film is the hope that we're holding out for is that Robbie and Cecilia will be reunited and be given the lives that they've always wanted together. That's what we're hoping for. But if you've seen the movie, you know that that day never comes. Robbie and Cecilia tragically die, and Bryony is left without ever experiencing the atonement that she seeks. And at the end of the film, you see Bryony old and gray. And she has spent her entire life, her entire life has gone by before her without ever experiencing the release. That's tragic. That's tragic. Now, what about you? What about you? Are you still scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing away, haunted by your sins? 
Are you still longing for the release that seems to elude you no matter what you do? Now, I want to be the Lord Jesus for you right now and tell you of the effect of the cross on which I died. The cross on which I died was to pour out my love on you. If you think that my Father is angry with you, He is not. If you think that there's any relational strain between me and you, it is fictional. It went away the very nanosecond I said in real time and space, it is finished. God is her Father. And we don't have to bring anything to the table. I want to end here with the words of Martin Luther. Human reason has the law for its object, thinking, I have done this, I have not done that. But faith in itself has no object but Jesus Christ, the Son of God, given up to death for the sins of the whole world. It does not say, what have I done? And what have I offended? What have I deserved? It says, what has Christ done? What has he deserved? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you connect the dots where I have failed. And no matter how much preparation I have, Lord, I am not able to bridge that gap. Only you are. And I don't know what every one of us are going through, but Holy Spirit, you do. And I ask that, Lord, you would speak to us. That you would make our hearts leap. I want to pray for my skeptic seekers, friends here who are wondering and questioning if this is and can be true. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would convince them that it is. Would you make all of our hearts leap? Would you make this new afresh for those of us who need to hear it again? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.